Welcome to the Later in Life Planning Show with Patrick Colley, brought to you by Keystone Elder Law, right here on News Radio WHP 580. Now, here's your host, Patrick Colley. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Later in Life Planning Show, sponsored by Keystone Elder Law. At Keystone Elder Law, we believe in shielding the middle class from the costs and the challenges of getting older. And building a shield means you are anticipating a specific, a predictable threat. I mean, the fact that it's a shield means it's a threat that's probably going to hurt. So you're you're coming up with a protective plan for that threat. The plan, when it comes to my world at Keystone Elder Law, so I'm talking about estate planning, I'm talking about asset protection, your plan's going to have a financial component, and it's going to have a legal component. And I want to go into that maybe with a little more depth or explaining it a different way than I have in previous episodes. But even when you get done with the financial component and the legal component, there are countless other resources available depending on what your circumstances are, what your expected challenges will be. And many of those resources have been featured as guests of this show. I encourage you, if this is the first time you're hearing the Later in Life Planning Show, to check out these other episodes. Give them a listen because you can go to whp580.com and they make it really easy. Just go to the upper left-hand corner of the website, whp580.com. There's a menu and look under podcasts for the Later in Life Planning Show. Or if you have a phone, and you probably do, then you can use your iHeart app or your Spotify, your iTunes. You can find the Later in Life Planning Show and listen to all the past episodes. And then you start to see all of the resources that are available to anticipate specific threats and be ready for them in the later years of life. When you listen to this show long enough, you realize that my idea of making a plan, building a shield, really ought to be more than just sitting down and having a simple will. Your estate plan anticipates a a threat such as incapacity, dementia, strokes, falling and breaking a hip, other conditions with lasting cognitive and physical impairment. If you all you have is a simple will, you have no shield to deal with that situation. So just taking incapacity alone, number one, you want to authorize another person to have access to what you have. And I'm talking financial accounts. I'm talking the ability to sign legal documents, an agreement, uh, a deed to sell a property, things like that. And if you don't have that, all of the adult responsibilities that you currently just handle without giving it much thought will come to a grinding halt. That's a problem by itself, but it's an even bigger problem if in incapacity you you need some form of long-term care to address the medical condition or the injury because it's expensive care and you really need a seamless transition by authorizing somebody else to make decisions for you and to make money available. The, the second part of the incapacity plan is you can take steps to preserve assets. The law has developed to allow you to protect what you've worked hard for and saved. It's nobody's fault when a person has dementia. It's a cruel disease. The insult on top of the injury is that the care that may be needed at one level or another will last for years. And so 
planning ahead and and preserving assets if possible is a really good idea. The, the government understands it's not your fault. Uh, if you're in the middle class, you have the most to lose. I've said before on this show, the middle class needs asset protection more than anybody else because everything you've saved will be wiped out by something like dementia or a stroke. That's just the way it goes. I see it happen all the time. And if that happens to you, if, if you're the one who has an incapacitating health event and your care costs $8,000 a month or even $13,000 a month, if you have a spouse at home, is that spouse going to be worried about going into poverty because you got sick? Not if you have built a shield to protect your spouse, protect what you have so that your spouse continues to have the best life possible. So estate planning is far more than just having a will. The will does nothing for you until you've passed away, and that there's still some opportunities even inside the will for asset prote uh, protection, but it's incapacity planning that you really need to put a lot of emphasis on. It's asset protection. Your will may be useless if you don't do the incapacity planning correctly because you're going to burn through everything that you've saved. So you're building a shield, and and I would say even if long-term care is never in your future, you still might need to build a shield of some kind. If you never have an incapacitating health event, I, well, first of all, I guarantee you, you're one of the lucky few. All of the available statistics out there say that one in three people will have dementia, and that doesn't even get to the people who will have a stroke or MS or Parkinson's, ALS, a bad accident or a bad fall. The list goes on and on, and that's why closer to 70%, 70% of the population will end up needing a higher level of care. So if you don't fall into that camp, you, you did some things right, or maybe you just lucked out, I don't know. But you still have the need possibly to be building a shield inside your estate plan. And maybe it has to do with family dynamics. I'll get into that uh, in a moment here, because let's let's consider it how it all comes together. Let's say someone comes into my office at Keystone Elder Law. We'll call her Hannah. Could just as easily be Howard, but we'll go with Hannah. And as I said in a previous episode of this show, the best approach to planning is education, preparation, action. So Hannah already did the education. She participated in a seminar that I do on a regular basis. She, she went to keystoneelderlaw.com. She used the workshops tab to get registered for one of my weekly online workshops. However she did it, maybe she just listens to the Later in Life Planning show week in and week out. But she understands that she needs to be thinking about predictable threats and building a shield. She even understands maybe what that shield might look like for her because she has identified what the specific threats are likely to be. Preparation. She started preparing by gathering information. She wrote down who's the, who are the members of her family. What are her financial accounts? How much, is in, how much money is in there? What real estate does she own? And she knows... Uh, what she has, and she knows what is her concern. Where is the, any of that stuff vulnerable? So now she's done the education. She's done the preparation. We know what her concerns are, her goals are. So now I do my homework. Before I walk into the, the room to meet with her, I've reviewed all this information. I'm ready for the meeting. So this is what I know about Hannah. Hannah lost her husband a couple years ago. 
Hannah has income uh, that is Social Security and a small pension. Her Social Security is, let's say, $1,800 a month. The pension's, let's say, another $600 a month. So she has total monthly income of $2,400. Hannah owns a home. It's worth about $400,000. She has brokerage accounts or investment accounts, let's say another $400,000, and she has an IRA with $300,000. And now keep in mind, if her husband passed away, some of this might have been his money, and now it's her money. So she has the house, $400,000, brokerage accounts, $400,000, and an IRA with $300,000. And she has some money in the bank, just enough to go to the grocery store, fill the gas tank, uh, do some home improvements, that sort of thing. And the last time that Hannah and her late husband updated their estate plan was about 40 years ago when their two children were very young. So just for an example, I'm, I would be looking at her old estate plan and, uh, you know, the attorney who prepared it, uh, you know, he was a legend back in his day, but he retired and passed away years ago. Uh, the husband is listed as the power of attorney. Well, now he's deceased. There was good sense that having a backup power of attorney, but it's it's Hannah's sister, Harriet, who is now in serious uh, poor health and is really not up to the task anymore. So if we stop right there with Hannah's story, what jumps out as predictable threats? How might she build a shield to protect what she has when you stop and think about her threats? Well, number one threat is there's no incapacity plan. So if nobody, if her husband can't, can no longer pick up a power of attorney and deal with banks and insurance companies, get taxes done for Hannah, if Hannah becomes unable to handle the everyday adult responsibilities that we all have, who's going to step up and do that? Remember, I told you she has an IRA. That's in her name only. The financial institution will speak to no one else other than Hannah unless she has authorized someone with a valid power of attorney. So incapacity planning is the most obvious red flag, the biggest threat. If she becomes incapacitated, there's going to be a real mess. So that's the first thing. And when we come back, I'm going to talk more about incapacity planning. What's the solution if that's the threat? And I do teach people for free. As, as many times as I can possibly do it, I, I will be in front of people, whether it's weekly workshops available at KeystoneElderLaw.com, whether it's an in-person seminar. If you'd like to invite me to speak to your book group, your church group, your community group, I do that all the time because people need to know about this stuff. But we'll be back for more of the Later in Life Planning Show, sponsored by Keystone Elder Law, here on News Radio WHP 580. Now, more of the Later in Life Planning Show, here on News Radio WHP 580. We are back on the Later in Life Planning Show, sponsored by Keystone Elder Law. I'm your host, Patrick Cauley. I'm the owner of Keystone Elder Law, and today, we're bringing it all together from a legal perspective. What does planning ahead mean? Uh, we've talked about how it's way more than just a simple will. So if you're still working with the assumption that all you need is a will, then uh, hopefully this will reveal a little bit more to you. So before the break, I was talking about uh, a hypothetical client, Hannah, who lost her husband a couple years ago. She she has a you know a relatively small amount of income, social security and a pension. She has a house worth four hundred thousand, brokerage accounts four hundred thousand, and an IRA with about three hundred thousand, maybe a little bit of money in the bank. But 
her her estate plan, the the, the legal plan for all of this uh, and for her family, really, is outdated. So the last time they did it 40 years ago, she doesn't really have anybody equipped to step up and handle financial responsibilities, to uh, to handle all of the adult responsibilities that we handle all the time. So what's the solution? Well, number one, we're going to discuss her children. We're going to discuss uh, any nieces or nephews, trusted friends or professionals. But we're going to find the best person suited to take the role that she had formerly given to her late husband and as a backup to her sister who's now in poor health. We need to replace them as decision makers. We probably need to overhaul everything the power of attorney says about what these people can do for her because she's in a different stage of life now. There are different uh, different uh, challenges. The law has been updated, so what needs to be in a power of attorney is different than it was 40 years ago. And the skill set for the right person, for the financial power of attorney we're going to talk about, do they pay their own bills? Are they uh, organized? They don't have to be financial wizards, but, you know, could they show Hannah's money coming in Hannah's money going out, and any money going out is being spent for Hannah's best interests. Would they be able to organize things? Would they be able to contact uh, experts if necessary, maybe a real estate agent or a, a financial advisor, an accountant, an attorney? Would they be up to that task? But that's fairly straightforward. There's a level of trust, and then there's a level of basic organization and sophistication, but, but it doesn't have to be much more than that. We're also going to talk about the decision-making for medical decisions. And the person chosen may be the same person as the financial power of attorney, but it might not be because there's more of an emotional component now. Seeing Hannah in a hospital bed might not go over well with one of her children, while another one might be better equipped to make those decisions. And of course, along the way, we will get into Hannah's uh, wishes for what if it turns into an end-of-life situation where there's not much time left, what quality of life decisions does she want to make? But this is just making her go much further ahead than where she was when she first walked into my office because now we have the beginnings of a real incapacity plan. The, The threat we're dealing with is her losing the ability to make basic decisions that that we all tend to take for granted. But the second threat is, you know, especially with a 40-year-old power of attorney is and and a will that was 40 years old and really that's it is there's no asset protection. So, let's just focus on long-term care for a second. If Hannah had to pay $13,000 a month for nursing home care, because that's the level of care she ended up needing, that's a threat. That's a major threat, and that will burn through a lot of her money. With no plan at all, she could, you know, I I mean, at the very least, if she had a power of attorney that just said, you can pay my bills for me, okay, with nothing else, then, you know, you can access the IRA and probably run through that money first. Then we would run through the brokerage account. Then the house gets sold, and all all of the proceeds from the sale would also be sold. So is is that going to be the best plan for, for what Hannah had in mind? Probably not. The law is written to allow Hannah to, to have some solutions. The rules, of course, are much more favorable when there's a healthy spouse at home. So if, if Hannah's going into the nursing home, can we save close to 100% of what she and her, and her spouse have, have saved? Yes, we can, because nobody wants 
the spouse at home going completely broke because through no fault of theirs, Hannah got sick. So more can be protected when there's a healthy spouse. But here Hannah's husband passed away a couple of years ago. And and you kind of have to plan ahead if, if you're married. What if one of us dies and the other one needs long-term care? Now one of you is in Hannah's shoes. So the law still provides tools, even at this stage of the game, for middle-class Pennsylvanians like Hannah to protect some of her hard-earned savings for children. You see, if, if Hannah needs nursing home care, she can use Medicaid if, if paying privately through all of her money is, is not the option she, she wants to go with. She can use Medicaid, which will pay for extensive and, and high-quality care, but she loses all the income that she has to the nursing home. So her Social Security and her pension would go straight to the nursing home. That would not cover the whole bill, but Medicaid will cover a whole lot after that to cover the bill every month. Number two, she is allowed to have a home, but she has no income. I just told you that. So how does she pay for all of the household expenses, the homeowner's insurance, property taxes, the utilities, all of that? And the rest of her savings must be reduced to nothing to become eligible for Medicaid. So when we put into a bucket of countable assets for Medicaid, her her money in her IRA, her brokerage accounts, whatever she has in the bank, when we put all that money in, in a pot of money for Medicaid to look at, they say that has to all disappear before she before Hannah's eligible for Medicaid. Now it does, there is a plan where we can get a sizable chunk of that money to her children. So we're at least honoring what her will said. If they were ultimately the recipients of that money from the estate, then we'll get a good chunk of that money to them. And then um, you might think, well, with that money, the children can then turn around and and if, if Hannah's technically allowed to have a home, they can pay for the household expenses. That's not... Uh, that's not a, a great plan. I mean, so if if we if we get some of the money to the children and we can't save all of it because of the way the Medicaid rules work, but there has to be a, a good chunk of money going to the nursing home itself. But once we get all the money to the children, then the next problem is that if Hannah dies owning that house that she was told she's allowed to have, the government comes in and tries to get paid back for all the care they provided. So let's say she's in the nursing home for three years at about 150000 a year. So they're going to say, we're owed an awful lot of money, and they're going to show up when her estate is settled, and they're going to say, sell that house and give us all the money from it. So the children can't just uh, use their money to maintain the house and then inherit uh, the house through Hannah's will. They have to plan for, well, the house will just be taken when her estate is settled. So what's the solution to this threat? If she has no asset protection, an obvious way is, number one, build into her power of attorney the authority to give half of her savings to her children. I just sort of skipped over that like it's part of the planning, but that must be clearly authorized in the power of attorney. There's been too much financial exploitation of vulnerable people, and so the lawmakers had enough of it, and they said, look— if you're going to go in and do more than just pay bills, you're actually going to clear out somebody's accounts when they're incapacitated. Well, they better have authorized that because otherwise there's going to be legal ramifications of doing that. So, you know, a lot of I would just say not to pick on anybody, but general practice attorneys may not be familiar with how 
asset protection works in in when we when it comes to long-term care. So they'll draft these power of power of attorneys that simply don't address this point, but it has to specifically give the authority to do asset protection to save as much of that money as possible when we look at the countable assets in that bucket for Medicaid, get it to the children or else they can't do it. So number 2, other than just having a good power of attorney, instead of losing half of everything, a trust, a very middle-class trust, can be created. Remember, Hannah can own her house, but she has no income to pay for it. And if she owns it when she passes away because the kids kept it and they kept maintaining it with, with Hannah's money, well, then it's going to be taken. So the house goes into a trust. Many years later, Hannah needs nursing home care she doesn't even need to report that house in the, the, the bucket of countable assets because she doesn't own it. And at the end of her life, when the government is getting paid back from everything that she had when she passed away, that would not be much if she's on Medicaid, but if she had that house in her name, they would be taking the house, but it's not there. It's not part of her estate because it was gotten out of her name into this trust. The, the, so the trust protects 100% of the house Instead of having to sell it, put the money into that bucket of countable assets, and then only save half of it. So that's an opportunity to save an awful lot of money. If it's a $400,000 house, that trust alone will save $200,000 of Hannah's hard-earned savings. I go into a lot more detail about how you pay for long-term care when I do these workshops. Uh, They're online. You take them in from the comfort of your home. Go to keystoneelderlaw.com. Use the workshops tab to get registered, and you can go much deeper on all of this. How am I getting to this Hannah's story? You'll know inside and out how I can and you can uh, how we can do that. And you can ask questions. We'll talk more about Hannah's story in a moment here on the Later in Life Planning Show, sponsored by Keystone Elder Law on News Radio WHP 580. Welcome back to the Later in Life Planning Show on News Radio WHP 580. Here's Patrick Colley. So we're talking today on the Later in Life Planning Show, sponsored by Keystone Elder Law, about Hannah's story, because Hannah, this hypothetical Hannah, is a way to drive home the point that you have a simple will. Well, that's not a plan. That's that's one document. That is uh, maybe one important part of a plan, but there's a whole lot more that goes into identifying predictable, specific, often expensive threats and building a shield against them. So protecting Hannah from threats, we started by simply having an incapacity plan because her 40-year-old estate plan was no longer working for her. The people named uh, to to have access to what she has, that's you give access during your life in order to have a seamless incapacity plan. So if incapacity came for her, she had people named to to take care of her adult responsibilities who were no longer able to do it. So that's uh, that's the most obvious improvement to be made. Let's let's talk about who's right for that role. Let's talk about what they need to be able to do for, for Hannah. Next step, let's look at asset protection, because now we know just statistically that uh, there's a one in three chance of having dementia. There's a nearly 70% chance of needing long-term care. So now that, that Hannah no longer has her spouse, and some of you listening, if you're married, if there comes a time when one spouse has passed away, the other one needs long-term care, I can now only save 
more in the neighborhood of half of all of your savings rather than 100% uh, when there's a healthy spouse who might need money to live on. So so now we're talking about, well, what about her house? That That's easy. We can put the house into an asset protection trust, a very middle-class type of trust. It, it is now off the table for the long-term care Medicaid rules where uh, where otherwise, if she if she left that on the table, the the government can get paid back for the care at the end of Hannah's life. Well, it's no longer on the table. So so far, so good. Let's add a new wrinkle to Hannah's story. So, same client, same woman. She lost her husband. Uh, same assets. So four hundred thousand or so in her brokerage account, three hundred thousand in an IRA, a little money in the bank. But let's say Hannah instead tells me that she she recently sold her house and so there's another 400,000 in savings and she moved into a retirement community. She states instead a different primary concern, a potential threat looming on the horizon for her that she'd like to build a shield against. So she has a daughter and a son. The daughter is married to a guy who has issues. He can't keep a job. His recent interactions with the police are well documented by the local news and probably not in one of those feel-good fundraising stories, Uh, not not that kind of story. So there's some concern there about uh, what happens if if money is left uh, to uh, the daughter from Hannah, is the money going to be squandered by the son-in-law and... Or if they go through a divorce, is is half the money left to Hannah going to go to the son-in-law in the divorce? So that you know, as much as as uh, Hannah's rooting for her daughter and wants the marriage to work, and hopefully the son-in-law uh, gets some things straightened out and doesn't have problems. In the meantime, this is looming as a threat in her mind. Meanwhile, that's just her daughter. Her son, unfortunately, struggles with addiction, so she's concerned. Based on past behavior, and and there's been moments of success and moments of setbacks, uh, but she's concerned that if she leaves money to her son, that it's immediately going to fuel a self-destructive bender of sorts. I mean, whether he runs to a drug dealer or or drinks the money away, it's not going to be good for the son to receive that money. So maybe we add in that she also has long-term care insurance, and with all these available funds— She's not so much concerned about the threat of paying for long-term care. She's concerned about when she passes away, all the money that's left over, you know, it's going to go to the kids. That, that is still her plan. She loves her kids, and despite their challenges in life, she wants to give them every uh, opportunity and advantage. So how, does you, how do you make that happen? Well, a simple will is not going to do it. Simple will generally means I leave everything to my spouse, and if my spouse has already died, then to the kids in equal shares. And that can be done in a page or a page and a half. So a simple will is not at all what Hannah's looking for here because that would leave the money outright, and we've just gone through the threats that are posed there. So she doesn't she doesn't want to just do that. She wants to have some sort of plan. Well, remember in her, we're going to do the same incapacity plan where there's a power of attorney. There's a health care power of attorney. So she's giving access or control over funds, over the ability to sign her name on a document to make uh, make decisions for her. She's giving up access, not giving it up. She's allowing access and control to another person. What we're talking about now it would be a change to her will to limit 
access and control. So she can still leave money to her son with addiction and her daughter with a potential divorce or at least marital strife right now. Uh, Leave it to them just fine, but limit access and control in a way that uh, it doesn't cause predictable harm in each of those circumstances. So let's take the daughter first. How would that work? Well, if she just left the money to the daughter, then the danger is daughter now has it in one of her accounts. It has come into her uh, her possession during the marriage to the son-in-law who's in the news for all the wrong reasons. And so now if there's a divorce, the question is, would it be split up half and half or however it would be to split up in a divorce proceeding? Or it could just be used in, you know, maybe maybe if she gives access to, to her husband, uh, the money just gets squandered. So instead, you limit access and control. So the, it's not an outright distribution from the will to the daughter, but instead it's handed to a trustee to hold that money. So it's in a pot of money for the daughter. So it's all meant to benefit the daughter. But here are the conditions that are stated. Um you know, number one, it's it's you know for certain, uh, let's say, maintenance of or or support of of the daughter, and you can get as specific as you like. But it's really if she needs to buy a new car, she can do that, and it's in her name only, and the trustee can pay for that directly. So it, it's it's somebody else paying for something directly. Now, who's the trustee? There are circumstances where the daughter could be the trustee of this trust. Uh, if the language of the trust limited how the money can be used sufficiently, then she could be. Another option is to have another family member serve as the trustee of this trust and be the one who pays bills directly. The daughter just says, this is what I need. As long as it's a legitimate excuse, it's not, um, you know, I need to support my husband in some way, then the language of however you decide to craft this will say, okay, trustee then makes the money available because it's good for the daughter or perhaps for grandchildren if if Hannah has grandchildren. So it's just limiting access and control. So husband can never say to his wife, you, uh, Hannah's daughter, you should just grab some of that money and let's go on a crazy vacation. She'd have to go to a trustee and the trustee has to look at the rules set by Hannah and say, does this support my daughter? Is this one of the uh, uses of the money that I had in mind. Uh, you know, if Hannah ne- or if Hannah's daughter needs job training, that would definitely be a legitimate excuse. If she needs uh, help paying off uh, her own personal credit card debts, well, that might be a legitimate excuse. Uh, but you can tell that it's just limiting the way, number one, who gets to distribute the money and under what conditions. That way, you are severely limiting the ability of the wayward son-in-law to get his hands on that money in any way. Similar story with the son. So an addiction trust is a little different because it really comes down to the particular background of the individual. Not every story of addiction is the same. They they tend to be frustrating uh, to family members because it's a uh, you know, it's it's not always a once and done effort to get better, but you know, you you can build in incentives if if you go uh you know so long, let's say a year with full employment, no uh no drug arrests, no you know no violations of the law. You can set all kinds of benchmarks to say, look, you're doing all these things. Maybe you know you're you're seeking treatment and you're completing treatment. But you set these benchmarks, and then if you get to the first benchmark, a certain amount of the money is yours outright. Um, 
and until that point, you know, so you're you're giving hope uh, if it's appropriate under the circumstances. You have to look at the history, and maybe that's never appropriate for a particular person. But here, let's say the son might have some hope if given incentives. He does the right things. He's rewarded because he gets a little bit more freedom. He does some more right things. He gets a little more freedom. But up until the point where the money is distributed to the son, then somebody else is paying his rent or his mortgage. You're not giving the money to the son to pay the rent because it might never make it to the landlord. You're giving it to somebody else who is objective. I definitely would not recommend that it be his sister, Hannah's daughter, because that would put her in a terrible position to have to say no. But you put somebody else in that position who will take on that responsibility. And there are some nonprofits and other organizations who do this uh, with some frequency. So it's not certainly not the first of these cases to come up. But that's how we would limit access and control inside the will. So that would be a massive update to Hannah's will to see that the money gets where it needs to go. More on Hannah's story in a moment when we come back from a break. You're listening to News Radio WHP 580. It's the Later in Life Planning Show here on News Radio WHP 580. Now your host, Patrick Colley. We are back on the Later in Life Planning Show, sponsored by Keystone Elder Law. And I've been trying to put it together a lot of concepts today with the story of Hannah, who lost her husband and is now looking at some situations, whether it's her concern about protecting what she has from her own long-term care costs, just maybe just becoming incapacitated, even if there aren't high costs. Maybe there there are family dynamic issues like uh, one child with a problematic marriage, another child with addiction could have been creditor issues from a failed business and running up credit card debt. There's all kinds of of issues that come up, even when it comes to identifying who's the right person in the in the right seat, the right decision making role for you. You know, you have to think a little bit about family dynamic issues there. How are the family members going to get along with each other? Uh, what's the communication style going to look like? So there's a lot that goes into this to to really make a plan. Uh, you know, when I said at the beginning that if that if someone thinks that a simple will is all they need, obviously at this point in the show, you can see I think there's there's quite a bit more that you want to think through. Just because you don't know what's coming down the pike, there are some very common. Uh, expensive, specific threats. And for most people, for most central Pennsylvania families, that's going to be the cost of long-term care. It's just, I'm going by the numbers here. I'm looking at uh, every statistic that says one in three people will have dementia and that many more people, for, for a variety of reasons, will need levels of care that might require a little extra expense. And it's just about understanding how this all works. And that's why, and I, I know I harp on this show from time to time about uh, these workshops that I do, the seminars that I do. Um, but, you know, I, I, I set aside the time to do this show because I want people to understand these concepts. And there's probably a lot more that you want to know. You maybe have more questions than you started with with this show. Uh, maybe a little bit has come together and you're clear on, but you want to learn more. So I remind people that I set aside a whole lot of other time 
Uh, this is after hours when it's, you know, you're home from your daily responsibilities. I'm not done with mine because I'm not going home until I do my workshop where it's online. You can take it in anywhere. Um, I, I take questions and I'll stay on there sometimes for an hour and a half until people are, are finished asking questions. But the feedback has been tremendous where people really appreciate that they're being taught things they never heard before. Um, they're, they're understanding concepts that maybe they were vaguely aware of. And I, I do, you know, tend to hear quite a bit, oh, yes, I went through this with my mom. I went through this with my dad. Settling that estate was uh, a real bear. Um, you know, I hear that people have been through it. That's the worst way to to get an education because you weren't ready for it. You didn't you didn't get yourself in the mindset. It's just it thrust itself upon you. So I would much rather have radio shows like this. I'd much rather have uh, the opportunity for people to to take in some free education and understand where things might be going. Because a little bit of time spent taking in that education can yield a much, much better plan for your family. And I'm not just talking keeping more money in the family, although that that is important for a lot of middle-class families because you, you work pretty hard to get every penny you have. But I'm talking also about the emotional impact on on going through that. I mean, when the people say, I've been through this, oh, the Hannah story, I mean, yeah, I had that experience with my mom. Uh, she lost our dad and then had health care problems. And boy, was it expensive. And she ran through uh, so much of, of her money. And, and boy, there was no plan in place to get into her accounts. And we were looking all over the place. So when you do some planning, you can leave a roadmap for you, the people who are closest to you. It's It's a wonderful gift. To, to do for them, where if you get sick, they know exactly what to do. They are legally authorized to do it. They end up saving a lot of your hard-earned savings, and they avoid a lot of emotional turmoil. So that's why I, I tell stories like Hannah's. That's why I do the free workshops. Again, keystoneelderlaw.com. Use the workshops tab, and you can see the different ones that I do. One is a lot of proactive planning. The other one takes a deeper dive on the levels of care, how you can pay for them. And every week on this show, I'm trying to bring on maybe a different guest who can shed light on a whole other resource outside of the legal and the financial, something else that might add to your shield, that your ability to soften the, the challenges as they're coming down the pike at you in the later years of life. But I'll return to the beginning where if we're talking about Hannah, she had to put the right people in the right role. So who was right for her financial power of attorney? All of the little financial property related legal issues that might come up. Who stands in her shoes legally to get that done? Maybe the same person, maybe not, but who makes medical decisions? And then if we get to the wrinkle that I threw later in the show on maybe a child who had some, some problems going on in their life, Hannah still wants to support that child, but you, you don't want to give full access and control the way you do when you're setting up your incapacity plan. You're, you're allowing another person to have access to what you have because you trust them and they'll do a good job if you can't do it yourself. When, it, when you have the situation where you have to control a distribution to a child for whatever reason, now you're limiting access and control. And so you're setting up a trust, really. I mean, it's somebody else will hold the money, and under the circumstances you decide on, will pay for things directly or will make distributions. So that's another role. Who's the right person for that role? And and it's different in the situations that I, I gave, these hypothetical situations of the daughter 
who is otherwise responsible but has an irresponsible husband. Well, okay, we have more trust in the daughter to play some role there. The the son certainly cannot be the trustee of his own addiction trust. That would that would defeat the whole purpose. So who's the right person for that role? And understanding that unique uh, condition of addiction and and the behavioral aspects of it. Um, even if you set up a trust like that inside your will or outside your will, maybe the asset protection trust for Hannah's house, well, remember, she has an IRA. So it's important to remember half of estate planning is just understanding during the, the education, the preparation. Before you take action, know that how your property will get to other people. And money in an IRA, we, we don't pick up the will for that. When Hannah passes away, there's a beneficiary designation on the IRA, just like there is for life insurance. So you just show them a death certificate, and they're going to read whatever, whoever gets it is listed on the beneficiary designation. Well, Hannah could do all this great legal planning, but if she never updates her beneficiary designation, then maybe she still has her two children receiving money in equal shares outright full access and control, which would be disastrous if they have the little wrinkle I threw in with the marital problems and the addiction. So you'd want to change that to the trustee of whatever trust you set up for them, whether it's a trust that you set up during life uh, or it's built into your will so it springs into action when you're gone. You want to list that trustee so the money goes there and then follows all the instructions that you set up with that trust planning. Other questions that might come up, I mean, if if Hannah and her husband uh, came in while he was still alive, I might have anticipated some things coming their way. Maybe there would have been time to do more asset protection. Uh, generally, the sooner you act, the, the, the more can be done. Um, but, you know, questions might come up. Well, you know, if, if the husband were sick and Hannah's fine, you know, I hear it all the time. I just want my wife to be taken care of. That's my first priority. Okay, we would look at that long-term care insurance uh, if they had it uh, or if they were considering it, depending on their age, uh, the likelihood of even getting it. I'd look at various factors. There's, there's those, those plans or those policies are not all created the same. And I would say, okay, look at your available funds. Look at the type of long-term care insurance you have. And then based on that, if they had you know $2 million plus the long-term care insurance, I'm probably telling them don't worry about Medicaid because there's a better way. There's a more seamless way to pay for long-term care if that threat ever comes. I certainly don't push everybody towards Medicaid. That is sometimes a lifesaver, very frequently a lifesaver for middle-class families who will otherwise run through all of the money that they spent saving, and uh, that can create a terrible situation for the whole family. But you know, if they have other resources and if they've insured uh, for that through long-term care insurance, that takes the pressure off of the very difficult rules of having to go broke, losing all your income to the nursing home uh, that Medicaid requires. So I'd just like to put a finer point on that, that sometimes Medicaid is right, sometimes it's not. Maybe you know some people right now, family members, friends, uh, who are looking at a potential long-term care situation, and it's worth sitting down with an elder law attorney uh, at Keystone Elder Law. We'd love to hear from them because you look at everything. You look at the family dynamics. You look at the finances. You look at really all the options on the table. What asset protection did they do well in advance? Is there still time to have an update to the power of attorney? 
these are the, you know, all the questions you're going to ask. We're going to go way beyond a simple will. Look out for other free educational opportunities. You might be getting something in the mail or you might go to KeystoneElderLaw.com. There's so much information out there. And I hope this helps you to make a better plan for you and your family. This has been the Later in Life Planning Show, sponsored by Keystone Elder Law, right here on News Radio WHP 580.